Today, we took the first step toward rescuing families from the failures of Obamacare. It's hard to come up with a crueler bill. Even President Trump reportedly now considers the House bill, quote, mean. But very importantly, it's a great plan. Went from great to mean. The Republicans are writing their health care bill under the cover of darkness because they're ashamed of it. There's a group of guys in a back room somewhere that are making these decisions. If it is an effort to rush it from a small group of people straight to the floor on an up or down vote, that would be a problem. I think we'll have ample opportunity to read and amend the bill. Will it be more than 10 hours? That's I think we'll have ample opportunity to read and amend the bill. I rest my case. It's an unbelievably complex subject. Nobody knew that healthcare could be so complicated. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. She's a noted historian with a unique view of the Trump administration. And he's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist with decades of experience reporting in Washington. And this is the Politics and History podcast that asks, what is happening? And has it happened before? Hi, Heather. Hey, Ron. How are you? All right. How are you? Good. Good, good, good. You know, I'm getting old because, you know, I reported on the Affordable Care Act years ago, seven years ago. And now the Senate finally pushes through this draft of the the replacement, the American Health Care Act. The draft comes after weeks of private smoke-filled room conversations, deliberations. Who knows what they were saying? Thirteen Republicans led by... Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, this behind-closed-doors approach, wildly criticized by Senate Democrats and some Republicans. You know, I feel the years of reportage, every reporter in Washington reporting about Obamacare, every tiny turn of it, and now suddenly, poof, gone to be replaced by something that is an utter mystery. I mean, this is 15% of the U.S. economy. Suddenly is going to be turned on its head. No one has any idea until, boom, read it quick and we're going to vote. I mean, we've been focusing for all of these months on the shiny objects of will Trump be impeached, Jim Comey, Bob Mueller, and all of a sudden your life is going to change because the fundamental foundation upon which it rests is now being utterly reshaped. Utterly reshaped in secret, which is the thing that I find just astonishing, in secret by 13 white men who are going to have control over, as you say, a sixth of the economy, at least 23 million American lives, probably more, and they're doing it all in secret and they're going to force it through in what appears to be about 10 hours of debate. This seems to me absolutely unprecedented. Well, look, we've got a guest here, one of our faves, Matt Bai, national political columnist of Yahoo News, author of the book, All the Truth is Out, The Week Politics Went Tabloid. Hey, Matt. Hey, guys. How's it going? Good. I mean, good. I, I can hear how it's going. There's a lot of, there's a lot of emotion. You know, Matt, can there, I just huh? confess something? I have got a disabled kid, as everybody knows. He's autistic. I wrote a book about our life with Owen and, you know... A world of Owens are about to get whacked. They live on Medicaid. If this pushes through, one-third of Medicaid payments are going to vanish. Poof. What's the feeling down there in Washington about all this, Matt? I I think, um, you know, we can't get too far out ahead of ourselves and they're going to ram this through. They are very likely to ram something through, some reconciliation package on this through the Senate. 
But there are a lot of bumps ahead. And, and I can tell you that Republicans I've talked to in the Senate very recently uh, still very skeptical uh, that they're going to get health care through both chambers and enacted. So I'm, so I'm still watching it with a little bit of caution. Let me ask you what those Republicans feel, certainly the Democrats, and what you feel about the secrecy issue of so much occurring behind closed doors that is so fundamental to our way of life in America. It's a broken process, and it's a broken process because they now believe, particularly Republicans, that there's simply no consequence for the way you behave or your actions. You know, it used to be that there was some fear in both parties about how far you could push it tactically. You know, I think the experience around Merrick Garland particularly has convinced this Republican set now in the Senate that, that people don't care about the tactics, that they're not paying attention, that you can do what you want. And until there is a cost for the abuse of the process, I think we're going to get abuse of the process. But yeah. let me ask this, Matt. If they really don't think they're going to pass it, why on earth is there this level of secrecy? What is the end game here? Why not just throw up their hands and say it ain't going to happen and we're just going to deliberate for the next three years? Well, they could do nothing, right? They could say this isn't going to happen, but they're getting a lot of pressure not to do that. They don't want to go into the midterm saying, yeah, we screwed this up. You know, this was the one thing the president ran on. And the problem is the clock is ticking because they remember – uh, 2009. And there's a fear that once the summer recess kicks in and they all go back to their districts and their states, they're going to hear bloody hell from everybody. And everybody's going to get shaken and come back freaked out and unwilling to take a tough vote. So I think there's a tremendous amount of urgency right now on the Republican side to get done whatever they have a shot to get done before they have to go back and actually face their constituents. Because in 2009, when Democrats went back, and, saw, and Republicans went back and heard those town hall meetings. Everybody went nuts. You know, you mentioned town hall meetings. We'll come back to that in a minute. But let's hear from somebody who is very angry about secrecy. Can you say it was done openly? Yeah. With transparency and accountability? Yeah. Without backroom deals and struck behind closed doors? Hidden from the people? Hell no, you can't! So that was former minority leader John Boehner, the tan crying man, speaking in 2010 before House Democrats passed the Affordable Care Act, i.e. Obamacare. But let me just step in here and suggest that, in fact, it's not accurate to say that there were no hearings about the ACA. Absolutely wrong. It was done in secrecy. Totally you the, false. You were there, right? I was right? there, of course. They had hearings all the time on ACA. Like 25 days they, worth they of debate. Went, and... It went a year and a half. I was there at the first meeting in the White House in March 2009, which was everyone, every stakeholder came to the White House. The place was a mob scene. It was jammed. And then it was just a public smackdown, professional wrestling for a year plus until the vote. I remember Max Baucus saying to me as the finance chairman yep. in the Senate, you can't do this on partisan lines. You can't do this in just the way he was talking about a kind of reconciliation process. And I said, why? And he said, because legislation like this isn't sustainable that way. It has to be changed and fixed and everybody's got to have skin in the game. And if only one party has a vested interest and getting rid of it, if they don't have to protect any of their members who took a vote for it, you'll never be able to do the things that make it successful. We can argue all day long about whether Democrats did what they had to do or not to get it done. They were in a real box and they got no cooperation from the start. But the way that law was enacted, probably, as Max Baucus predicted, made it long-term unsustainable. They've never been able to go back and fix what wasn't working. 
What's interesting to me is what's happening today with the AHCA looks so much to me like what happened in 1890 with a piece of legislation that also dramatically reordered the American economic system. And the parallels between that moment and this moment go right down to the fact that the president who was sitting in the White House in 1890 had not been elected by a majority vote. He had been elected only in the Electoral College. And most of the people who in was America— that? Benjamin Harrison. I know nobody but me knows who Benjamin Harrison is, but he's a fascinating precedent for where we are today because... Great Jeopardy question. Keep going. (laughs) If you win a million dollars, I want to cut. Um, (laughs) You're in for half. Because the Democrats had run on the idea that they were going to slash tariffs because tariffs protected monopolists, and those were hurting workers and farmers and regular Americans. And the Republicans nodded to that, and they said, you know, you don't have to vote for the Democrats because we're going to do the same thing. We will reform the tariff. And what they did in 1890 was they forced through entirely on a party vote an actual raising of the tariff, not the lowering of the tariff. And when they did that, the Democrats were outraged. They were screaming on the floor of Congress. They were trying to amend it. They were trying to get the floor, and the Republicans would not let them have it. And when the Republicans actually slammed through this vote, they were laughing and they were cheering, and the Democrats yelled across the aisle, you're rejoicing now. But in November, you'll mourn. And in fact, that following November, the Republicans were shellacked in the midterm elections. They lost the House two to one, and they lost control of the Senate, which was unthinkable two years before. Is that what we're fated to here in this terrible partisan world we're living in? That one side will ram it through, unsustainable, and then the other side will ram back, unsustainable. You know, because that's part of what people are feeling right now. They're getting whipsawed. We are in an era of very close control where mostly the public just seems to want to throw out whoever's in charge, not really respective of ideology. And so we are seeing now, you know, we're going to govern by executive order, which is really should be done by legislation. And then the other side comes in and takes it out. I mean, we are not moving forward. It's a volley. And I do think, you know, the thing Republicans need to think about is is the ramifications that you were talking about, Heather, because we've not seen this kind of legislation rolled back. This is something that, you know, as you say, has been now, you know, for several years has been in effect, is impacting people. People have insurance who didn't have it before. States are relying on Medicaid money. We don't know what the political effects are of trying to take that out of people's hands. I, frankly, I wouldn't roll the dice. So let's look at consequences here. At a town hall meeting in Lewiston, Idaho last month, Republican Representative Raul Labrador got an earful from an extremely fired up crowd. So, Matt, uh, what historical precedent is—I'm not—that's a question for Heather, but I'm going to let you go first, Matt. Uh, is there for pulling back on an entitlement this big, this consequential? What in our lifetime have we seen like this? I think never, certainly not in my career, and I don't think in, in my study of 
modern history, I often joke that I'm a historian of my own lifetime because people forget things so fast. I'm also uh, a, you know. a historian of your lifetime, Matt. It's fabulous. <laughs> it's a terrific <laughs> life. Not in my lifetime. And not in my lifetime either. This has not happened in my collective are, memory. Are, are, is anybody talking about that in Washington and saying, you know, we've got a problem because we're trying to take away things that people have become used to? What you hear over and over in the Senate, it's, it's really interesting among Republicans, is you know, Donald Trump is at a 35% approval rating, and they could suffer nationally for this. But when they go back to their states, he's still popular in their states, he's popular with their voters, and repealing Obamacare is a major priority for their voters. What history do we have in terms of entitlements throughout American history, things that people relied on, you know, built their life on, they got taken away? So it's funny that the Republicans right now are standing against health care because, in fact, it's a Republican ideology that America needs health care. They're the ones who come up with the idea in the 19th century. And it really is developed by Theodore Roosevelt. And it comes about in an interesting way that looks, again, much like the present. Theodore Roosevelt goes into office thinking that he can work pretty effectively with um, the industrialists, the extraordinarily wealthy men around him at the turn of the 20th century. And in, initially, all he asks them to do is to be transparent about how much money they're making. And if they're transparent and it's, it turns out they're making money for things that seem nefarious, that Congress can put in some regulations and protect regular American citizens. And industrials pretty much laugh at him. And increasingly, he starts to ask for more and more, and they laugh harder and harder. And he gets angrier and angrier until finally he looks around him and he says, look, we cannot have a healthy country so long as a few wealthy men control the economy, which is what they're doing in the early 20th century, especially when he makes his very famous speech in 1910, in which he lays out a new kind of relationship between the federal government and his citizens. And this is where we get the idea of his new nationalism. And in that new nationalism, he says, we need to protect the way American citizens grow up and the way they are able to participate in American society. And in order to do that, we have to have limits on how long people can work. We have to have uh, decent cities. We have to have regulations on what exactly industrialists can do. And we have to have a basic level of health care because citizens cannot participate effectively in society and cannot really move the economic, the social, the cultural, the political ball forward unless they have control over their health. And they have to be able to do that with some kind of a health care system. And then it's actually Dwight Eisenhower and his undersecretary of health education and welfare, Nelson Rockefeller, who writes the first federal program for Healthcare. Both of those Republicans, though, believe government could work on behalf of, of the citizenry. Yeah, yes, and they believed in an ideology that was actually quite different than the Democrats in the sense that they believed that it was imperative for the country as a whole to take on the welfare of all citizens, as opposed to the original program of Social Security, which is, of course, from FDR and a Democrat, which was really about paying your way in. That's another strand of American ideology as well, that you shouldn't get something unless you have skin in the game. But that tends to be a democratic way to look at things, as opposed to the Republican mm. way of looking at things, which is the one that is currently under attack by Republicans themselves. C could there be a Republican out there, Matt, who might resurrect the spirit of TR on this? Right. I mean, look, Heather's making a 
very trenchant point. Republicans didn't always act this way. And it's not just a change at Reagan. It's, it's part of the history of the party. As it happens, I was sitting in the Nixon library several weeks back having this exact conversation with John Kasich, who does consider himself a sort of heir to the Roosevelt uh, yep, legacy. Yep. John McCain used to talk about it a lot, too. And Governor Kasich sat with the president uh, for over an hour months ago, you know, trying to convince him to take a different attack on health care and talking about the policy. He said to me, it's a hard time supporting the president because he feels that, uh, you know, there's a spirituality missing from the current Republican approach. And by that, he, he means concern for the human condition, a sort of uh, public service and public good aspect that he feels like is missing. Now, you know, the one thing I would say it's a different world and a different government, and it's a little facile, right, to go back 100 years, and I do it too. We all do it at times. But, you know, when, when Teddy Roosevelt starts to rethink the role of a strong central government or when Franklin Roosevelt, you know, building on what his cousin did and what Woodrow Wilson did, you know, really introduces the basis for sort of modern activist government, there was no federal government to speak of. There was no income tax. There was a vast need for an actor in the marketplace that was not being filled. We don't live in that world. We actually have a vast federal government. We actually created a huge apparatus. Uh, and it spends more than it can afford. And for a lot of people in the country of all income levels and all experiences, it, it fails too often. And there's not faith. So when we talk about populism now, a lot of that populist anger is turned on government, not just on corporations, not just on the wealthy. Government is a huge, powerful institution in American life, and it changes the complexion of these conversations in a way you have to acknowledge. But don't you think, Matt, that the one of the reasons there's such populist anger against the government is that, in fact, it is working right now for a very small, very wealthy population? And that's the parallel that I see between that law I talked about in 1890 and the present. Lots of people are furious at the federal government now. They were furious at the federal government then because in each case, a very small group of very wealthy men rammed through a law that was dramatically going to affect the vast majority of Americans in a negative way simply because it would put money in their pockets. So like we just ran across 100 years of history. This is what happens, Matt, when you sit with a historian. You get to do not only the politics of history, but the history of politics. Let's now uh, take a break and we'll come back and look forward as to where we go from here. We're back with Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind with Heather Cox Richardson. Our guest is Matt Bai of Yahoo News. Matt, let's look ahead now. Will the Republicans' approach on this health care bill have implications, real implications, in the 2018 midterm elections? What's your take? Well, my crystal ball is broken, and uh, I can't find anyone to fix it. So it's, it's, a, it's a dangerous business looking ahead uh, in elections. But I will tell you the most salient fact about 2018 that, that there is in Letter American it. life. Letter it. We have now had three straight presidencies in which every president has come in with both chambers of Congress and the control of his party and left with neither. 
So the, the status quo isn't popular with too many Americans, and there's a whole lot of volatility in the system that didn't exist before. So if the question is, does revoking that health care law, repealing it, make it more or less likely that that volatility will manifest itself again in a fourth straight presidency, I would say more. So you know, I, if I had to choose a, a party to throw my money down on, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to be a Republican in that climate. I think what we're hearing is that people aren't happy with any of their choices. I think we're in a major political realignment, and then we're going to have the population throwing up new leaders who look at programs like health care and say, listen, this is what I need. You know, I don't know if you saw somebody said that what we really should do is start a GoFundMe for the nation for health care. Everybody pay it, and then you take it out when you need it, which is essentially a version of single payer. Right. I think that's going to change a lot. But I do think if, if everything that's happened so far in the yeah. Trump administration is going to matter in the 2018 election, it is health care, but we got a long time before that. What do you think? Well, you know, look, nothing is more fundamental to people's sense of security than the fact that they are profoundly vulnerable in the event of illness. I, I, you know, what could be more fundamental to me getting up in the morning and feeling like I can be a productive citizen in my day uh, than knowing that if something terrible happened to me or someone in my family that I wouldn't be devastated, that I might even uh, end up not being able to pay for the care I need and may, may die. You know, I think so often, at what point do we hit a kind of bedrock in the country where people say, look, I'm not asking for much. I'm just asking what the rest of the world takes for granted so that I'm not up at night. I'm not, I'm not saying, my God, my kid is handicapped. You know, he can't get care or he'll he'll be hungry when I die because government does not believe what every philosopher, every religious leader says over and over again. A country is judged by what it does for its least fortunate and most vulnerable members throughout history. That judgment will hold. Why is it no one can see that? and say, please, make this work. Can't government do that, if nothing else? So now we have crossed 100 plus years of history. We thought about what government can or can't do. We thought about what a citizen has a right to. And we've done this with our chum, Matt Bai. Matt, I love having you on the show here. Heather and I like you. You it's know that pleasure. we really do like you. <laughs> I you know, you speak I, hear that, it. I hear that so seldom now. Ron. I just want you to know that. <laughs> Matt, thank you for coming today. Anytime. Thank you, guys. You do a great job. Heather, great joy hanging with you, my friend. As always. I'm Ron Suskind. This is Freak Out and Carry On. We'll see you soon. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Freakout Carry On. Visit our website at wbur.org slash freakout. Our email address is freakoutandcarryon at wbur.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Extra production help this week from Amory Sievertson. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Music for the podcast, courtesy 
of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.